Blaze On Demand. The first question I have to ask is, in light of the release of your book, you might have seen over the weekend that the White House released a statement in honor of the, quote, first annual international day to end impunity for crimes against journalists, unquote. The administration then tweeted out from its White House account, quote, all governments must protect the ability of journalists to write and speak freely, unquote. How do you respond to that? Do you think that's because of my book release? <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's it's certainly interesting that it came out two days before the release of your book. Well, I would say the Obama administration has often been good on paper about talking about the importance of freedom of the press and openness and transparency. It's the actual execution of those things that's been a big problem, not just for me, but for journalists who've spoken out at the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, you know, there's pretty much general agreement now in published remarks as well as letters that journalists have written to the White House um, objecting to some of the practices. So I would just say, you know, what they say on paper or what they tweet out may sound good, but I think the proof is in the pudding, and we need to see some really big changes in how they execute these things. Now, the title of your book is Stonewalled, and in the book, I think one of the pivotal statements you make is that you write, quote, today, government, politicians, and big corporations might as well be one and the same, unquote. You were stonewalled repeatedly, not only by the parties that you were investigating, be it the Obama administration or various agencies in the federal bureaucracy or private corporations, uh, but as well by your employer, CBS, the very folks who are supposed to be adverse to the interests that you're investigating. Walk through the anatomy of a stonewalling so that the American public understands, for example, what you were up against in the Obama administration and your own employer in CBS. Well, there were many examples even prior to the Obama administration, depending on what topic that one was talking about, but they were fairly navigable. Maybe if one story wasn't good, you could move on to another story. You know, that's always part of the game is, trying to figure out what stories the broadcast producers want. There are sometimes legitimate differences of opinion, of course. There's not room for everything. But what happened the last couple of years I was at CBS was almost a near total shutout of any of the investigative reporting that I offered. Um, I think the New York investigative team would tell you much the same thing. They left. This was not widely reported, but their correspondent left. So they were left without an on-air correspondent, a whole investigative unit up in New York. And eventually their um, – senior producer left as well, there was just not an appetite for investigative reporting, and not just on political matters, but on anything that it seemed at times uh, would draw pushback they didn't want from interests who might push back. You know, some people can point to exceptions, and certainly there are many exceptions. There are, I still did some good reporting occasionally. There was still good reporting from time to time from many other correspondents, but I'm telling you that it was just in general harder to get that kind of reporting on the air and that journalists across the board in, in local outlets and national outlets are reporting the same sort of trends whereby their bosses will say, you know, we don't have a camera to shoot that. There's no time in the broadcast for that. That story feels kind of old. No one says we don't want investigative reporting. Stop it. But you can just tell there's such a drastic difference um, in, in how it used to be, you can tell there's something wrong. And again, it's not a phenomenon that I alone have noticed. It's something that's being, I believe, noticed across the board by journalists who do this sort of work. Which is ironic, of course, because 
if you look at the size and scope of government and as well as private corporations, there's more information out there than there's ever been before, and particularly in the government, just based upon the size alone, there has to be more corruption than there has been in the past. So basically, there's an opportunity set right for investigative journalists, and it seems to me, based on your book, that we're seeing less true, hard investigative journalism, except from people like yourself, uh, and I would say as well, within the blaze, we have a program for the record. I think that's right, and what's exemplary of that is the fact that on any given night, if you watch the three network broadcasts, they're often more alike than different, and it's not because there are only 10 stories going on in the world that day. It's because they use the same similar selection process to, I would say, censor out other stories that they perceive as not harmful to whatever interest they care about at the time. So you'll see these homogenous broadcasts that rely often on stories about the weather, polls, positive medical studies, things like that, celebrity stories, the British royals, features, animals, nature, and so on, with occasional hard-hitting stories, but more likely than not, only once other media has codified it. Maybe it's something that they copy or follow up from the New York Times or one of their trusted sources versus gathering the information themselves and relying on their reporters to turn up original and investigative reporting. And that troubles everybody because there are excellent reporters, not just at CBS News, but everywhere, reporters and producers who can turn up fantastic stories and have almost an endless supply of them, but are often now relegated to following up leads that someone has read on BuzzFeed or Gawker or Politico or CNN. So they're wasting their time kind of trying to verify what someone else has already reported and repeat what people supposedly already know rather than doing this original work that I think is is really the core of our mission. And in your book, you talk about sort of the intellectual laziness and sort of the fright within news organizations about pursuing something, pursuing a story and being the first to pursue it without someone else going first. How much of not only the story selection, but the way that a given story is covered is dictated by the ideology of the folks producing the story versus not wanting to step on toes and thus stopping oneself from being able to pursue future stories going down the road because you'll burn a source. It's entirely mixed. All of those things come into play in different ways. There's no formula. There's no way to say, and believe me, I tried. There's no way to say in advance uh, which story might be considered undesirable for what reasons. And we would, my producer and I, really think we, we would come across a fantastic story and then go through this twisted process of now who will they think it might attack? Who will they think? it might rub wrong, and will they want the story and why not? How can we present it in a way that they'll still want it anyway because it's good for the viewers? We spent so many hours in these sort of twisted discussions and thought processes and still couldn't navigate them. So I can't explain when, why, and how that comes into play, but I would say it was more frequent and more insurmountable in the last couple of years. But talking about the intellectual laziness and that sort of thing, I think one good example of that is you know, copying and sort of picking up what's out there on the web instead of doing original reporting. Prior to the release of this book, there's a sort of frenetic panic on the part of the interests who feel attacked by the themes in the book, and I don't blame them. But they put out things that are completely false and distorted. That's their job. There's, I don't even think it's illegal. If they word it a certain way, they can try to put out the propaganda. But then sort of quasi-legitimate press and then sometimes what's perceived as legitimate press We'll just pick up this stuff and repeat it. No original investigation of their own. They're repeating errors, 
circulating on the web, and there's already been a couple of them that have had to put up corrections and retractions because they jumped on this false information very quickly, and at least they did correct and retract. Some of them won't, but it's part of this whole syndrome of something's on the web, just pick it up, just copy it, you know, the truth be damned. There's the other syndrome that I think is exemplary of the bias that exists among some media organizations and reporters. Anything I say is to be questioned. That's fine. You know, be skeptical, ask the question. But they wouldn't dream of going after government information in the same way. So the government, which has proven to provide false information, perhaps about surveillance of citizens or healthcare.gov, we know they've given false information, yet the same media will accept the next press release from them or the next figures of proclamation with no documentation as if it's to be accepted, but then turn around on the reporter who questions it and attack them with, with the sort of ferociousness that I think they probably ought to be aiming in a different direction. They would never dream of it. They don't even realize they're doing this. And again, I think that's just part of this whole upside-down system that's, that's occurring. Now, delving a little bit into some of the big bombshell revelations from your book. Recently, you put out a video showing text and some documents that you were working on being deleted in real time. You recorded that on your phone. My question is, can you detail for readers kind of the extensive infiltration of your computer that that occurred and also dispel um, if you'd like to respond to some of the attacks being leveled at you by Media Matters? Well, Media Matters... Is it's just ludicrous to really worry about responding to them. They have a job to do. I think everybody knows that. I don't worry too much about people taking them seriously because they know where they're coming from. But to the extent that they've put out false information, it's, it's just so wildly wrong and so misinformed. And the experts that they supposedly consulted, hard to imagine they'd be willing to look at a video with very little information and go on the record saying the things they said. I, on the other hand, have very well-reputed forensic specialists who have all the information who I've consulted and, and I trust. And the, the, the tale with the computer intrusions is I never dreamed the government was surveilling me. That wasn't, you know, my brainchild. And, of course, at the time this was happening, it was pre the revelations, before the revelations about Associated Press and the records being secretly seized by the government. It was before we knew the government was spying on Fox News reporter James Rosen and his family. It was before Edward Snowden's revelations. It was before we learned that James Clapper for the government had given false information to Congress, claiming that there was no mass surveillance of citizens. So in that environment, it would seem ridiculous to think the government was surveilling me. But when sources started raising that question with me, and when someone actually looked at my computer, a forensic specialist with the government experience, and saw what was in there, I think it shocked all of us. And when I was told this is what happened, and then number two, a CBS forensics expert confirmed the remote intrusions, and then number three, I hired my own forensics expert who could go on the record uh, for for our background, and he found the remote intrusions. So that's undeniable as much as, you know, those who are desperate and panicked to get ahead of this in front of the book would like to say otherwise. It's just a fact that, that that's what it is. Do you think that the extent of the surveillance today is effectively a measure of your effectiveness as an investigative journalist? Well, the extent of the surveillance as well as the strength of the so-called pushback against anything I do. I've learned that the harder the pushback, the closer I usually am to getting to the truth on some story they perceive as damaging. 
if you look at the stories that have Media Matters and company have pushed back the hardest on, those are my most independently awarded stories, the ones that are recognized for excellence by by my peers and by those that have no special interest. So um, it's interesting to see the media, when they report on this, take the partisan view of media matters and let themselves be spun or used as a tool and ignore all the evidence of the fact-based reporting that I do and the recognition that it's received from independent peer journalists as if that doesn't exist. That's part of the problem, but I think that's that's worth noting. So let's delve into a couple instances of some of the most intrepid reporting that you did, which, uh, of course, consequently led to the greatest pushback from the Obama administration. You write in the book that you were literally barred from entering a Department of Justice building while investigating Fast and Furious. Is something like that common, and why are we still not at the bottom of the story? Fast and Furious was effectively marginalized by those who didn't want us digging into that story more deeply. And once the president declared executive privilege to keep something like 15,000 documents plus from being released to Congress and the press, that really put a hold on our information gathering abilities. A log that was turned over recently under court order by the government giving a partial description of what's in these mysterious documents that we can't see all these years later about Fast and Furious includes a lot of information about me. They, the president has stepped in and exerted executive privilege on emails about my freedom of information requests about Fast and Furious, on emails that forwarded around articles I wrote about Fast and Furious. Why is it that the president of the United States has to step in the one and only time of his presidency and declare executive privilege to withhold documents like that that involve me and my reporting, I can only guess. I don't know. But I hope because of court cases that are winding through now, maybe we'll get a little more information. It's taking a long time. The goal has been served by those who want to obfuscate and delay until something is considered old news or it's out of the public attention. That has occurred. This is now years later, but I still hope and still would like to get at some of the information that we've been seeking all of these years. And, of course, that obfuscation was effective because the president did win a second term, and, and that leads us right into Benghazi. First question, in your view, is Benghazi essentially the Middle East version of the Fast and Furious? I'm not sure I've thought of it that way or would look at it that way. In what respect? Well, my thought process being weapons were transferred into Libya and other areas, uh, by the U.S. that ultimately ended up in the hands of jihadists and then were turned around on us and other allies of America. I see what you're saying. I was never able to get enough information about the weapons transfers. We know that weapons transfers occurred through Libya, um, you know, as, as sort of a conduit going to Syria. But I personally don't have the details and sources that were able to confirm an, as much as I had for Fast and Furious, for example, that enables me to put together a picture like that in the case of Benghazi. What was the most underreported but important element of the Benghazi story in your view? I don't know if the underreported elements line up with the most important, but I would say the things we still need to know that many don't seem to care about for some reason. Um, what did the commander-in-chief do that night while Americans were under attack on foreign soil, not just in Libya, but also in Egypt at a time when they themselves say that 
there could have been more, that they expect perhaps a series of attacks, and yet we're ill-prepared, not positioned, and not even moving in that direction uh, so that we would be ready. What was the commander-in-chief doing? What orders did he give? What role did he play? And why is it a secret? I think that's information that belongs to the public. And the fact that from, from the very beginning, they haven't wanted us to know any of it leads me to believe, based on experience, that there's something important there. What it is, I don't know, because as I like to say, we don't know what we don't know. We only know they're working very hard to keep information out of the public view that I think belongs to the public. One of the particularly interesting aspects of your reporting in Stonewalled uh, that I thought was interesting and hasn't been picked on picked up on by a lot of other people is the Petraeus story. Um, you linked together through a number of questions, uh, you know, sort of not a conspiracy theory, but you simply lay out the questions as to why was General Petraeus ultimately dumped. And, and so my question is, in your opinion, why do you believe that Petraeus today is teaching a seminar at City University in New York? I don't go as so far as to form conclusions. What I did in the book, as you pointed out, is establish the temporal relationship between what happened to Petraeus with his personal scandal and what he was doing regarding Benghazi. The government well knew about his alleged affair, his inappropriate affair with his biographer, for quite some time, and yet had decided it was not something that jeopardized his role or his job, and claims, which is hard to believe, but claims that never alerted the President of the United States, that the head of the CIA may have this problem and you may be on the campaign trail and be asked about it at any time. They claim they never told the president this. But they were dealing with it on their own and letting him stay in his position and had concluded it was not something that needed to be addressed by changing his job. But suddenly, if you look at the temporal relationship, when Benghazi happened and Petraeus was not on the same page as other administration officials, now is when his alleged affair comes to light. Now is when somebody leaks it to Republicans in Congress. When does that happen? And oddly enough, Republicans in Congress, who you might think would leak that to the press or start addressing it, they keep quiet about it. I mean, it's a very strange dynamic that led to, at one point, the number two at the CIA, Mike Morrell, calling the shots on the Benghazi talking points when he differed with what his boss, Petraeus, wanted to do. They were edited so heavily that Petraeus said he just assumed they not be used at all because they took out the part in there Petraeus wanted that the CIA had warned of a possible attack and other factors, and they put in their information about terrorists and al-Qaeda. When all that came out, Petraeus thought the talking points were pointless. Mike Morrell, number two to him, overruled him on that and protected the State Department's interest and said that stuff should be removed because it makes the State Department look bad. So at this time during which the government was holding the alleged affair over the head of Petraeus. And he's not agreeing with the script that others were on, including the State Department and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. All of a sudden, his number two takes charge. Who gave his number two the authority to overrule him? It would seem to me that'd have to be somebody at the White House who basically tells Petraeus or tells Morrell that he's got authority over Petraeus and tells Petraeus that he better just toe the line. Petraeus, um, it was my impression, wanted a video released prior to Thanksgiving, uh, a declassified video of the attacks, which we never got once he left. We never got the video. So I think you had 
a CIA director that was seen by some as a bit of a renegade and perhaps dangerous in this whole Benghazi affair. And that's when all of a sudden his alleged affair with his biographer became an issue over which he had to resign. And you detail in your book that ultimately it was Benghazi in the end that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, led you to ultimately decide that you were going to terminate your relationship with CBS News and leave before your contract expired at the end of 2014. So there are sort of two areas that you lay out that ultimately broke the, the camel's back. One is that it appears that CBS explicitly supported the Obama administration narrative that the president referred to Benghazi as an act of terror in the Rose Garden uh, while speaking with Steve Croft. And the other is a, and I was not aware of this, a producer who repeatedly told you that while telling stories regarding the terrorist angle of Benghazi, that, that you had to report that Obama, quote, said he did not believe it was simply due to mob violence. Talk a little bit about that. At CBS, as we like to say sometimes, they love a story before they decide they hate it, and we don't know exactly what goes on or why the light switch goes off at some point. So they invited me in to cover the Benghazi story three weeks after it happened, and at first we're very pleased with the stories that I've produced. At some point we began to getting, began to get, of course, horrible pushback, as usual, from the White House and other interests, and the appetite from CBS News began to waver and change a little bit. And during this time period, right before the election, um, as, as you know, Romney accused President Obama of not calling it an act of terror uh, the, the day after the attacks happened. And President Obama said, yes, he did. What a lot of us didn't know, because it had been kept from us, even from some of us covering the story, was that that question was addressed the next day in this interview with Steve Croft. The president agreed that he avoided using the word terrorism because Croft asked that question specifically, and the president said, right. So that clip, which was withheld from us, would have at that point in time proven Romney correct on one issue that was key to him at least, and it would have proven President Obama incorrect. But CBS instead directed me and at another time another correspondent to use a different soundbite that in retrospect, in my opinion, was completely misleading and out of context, but intended to make the president look as though he was telling the truth versus the fact that he was incorrect. And I didn't find that the true text on my own or find out about this, but there was talk about this within CBS. And it was brought to my attention shortly before the election by somebody else who was outraged by it. It was a group of people, not just me. And we all realized there was something terrible had happened, that some managers had sat on this very important information in advance of the election, and we pushed to have uh, that information published. We thought it was crucial that it be published before the election just for the sake of being able to say we did so that it became known, and we felt that it would be because, because so many people were talking about it on the inside, that at least we could say, hey, we published it, and not say we were still sitting on it. That was a huge okay. event. And one of the worst parts to me was once it was acknowledged, because none of the managers ever said that it wasn't wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. There was never an investigation or at least an outcome described to me of or anybody held accountable about this event. And I thought really that was the worst part. People to be allowed to stay at a network that are not working in the network or the public's best interest, in my opinion, is just setting yourself up for disaster. It's just not, it's not a good thing. And that was just, that was very upsetting. 
And and obviously, the name that comes to mind is, is David Rhodes, naturally, simply because his brother was clearly instrumental in dealing with the, the, the Benghazi talking points mm-hmm. and editing them. Uh, a question, when it comes to the legacy media, given how incestuous it is between government and big media companies like CBS, ultimately, doesn't there have to be a move towards people basically bringing stories direct to the reader, just like you chose to do? I think so. The paradigm is shifting, and I'm not sure what we're left with in the end, but there's a dynamic that's occurring that's blurring the line between news media and non-news media by the people who want to control and shout down independent voices that vary from the script. The news media should be resisting the dynamic, but many of them aren't. They pick up the non-news media, the media matters type propaganda blogs, for example, and kind of repeat it as if it's somehow legitimized. They don't question it. So if the public doesn't resist the dynamic and recognize it, we'll be left with a information system that's put out by paid and special interests and what the government wants us to see and little else. And all the other information is going to be marginalized or ridiculed, discredited, and banned. I think the public is wiser than that. I think they're frustrated because they see it and they don't quite know what to do about it, but I don't think they're fooled by it. Um, That's my view. You've been very generous with your time, so I'd just like to ask two more very quick questions. The, The first is, are there any stories on the horizon or incremental data points that you'll be adding to storylines that you've been following that should be on our radar either regarding Benghazi, which I know is obviously they're going through the special investigation now, uh, or another topic that we're not aware of, some story that you might be breaking in the near future? Well, for example, I'm working on, and I'm not sure it ranks up there in people's minds with Fast and Furious and Benghazi, but I'm working on following up to what I think is a terribly underreported story that's very important about a federal study approved by the government and executed by top hospitals and institutions around the country on premature babies in which the government's own ethics body concluded that consent forms were deficient. In other words, these poor mothers, often single mothers, often African-American women, um, rushing in for emergency C-sections with extremely premature babies were, according to this the ethics body of the government, signed up for studies that they didn't even know they were signing the babies up for. And as a result, everyone agrees, this is, this is not in dispute, some of the babies were blinded and some of them died that wouldn't have otherwise. How can that not have been on the front page and headlines all over the country? And it wasn't. And I did this story when I left CBS. I did a three-part report on it for Daily Signal, which aired it and let the story, which published it and let the story go where it needed to go instead of questioning who it might hurt or implicate. And there's more to it that still has not been resolved. And there are other cases not unlike it in which the government has gotten involved in allegedly unethical practices that would shock people if they heard the details. And I think that's that's important to follow up on. That's one example. Last question for you. In your view, when Eric Holder leaves office, what leaves with him? Will journalists uncover all of the bodies likely buried in the Department of Justice, or will they simply move on to whatever the next stories are in the cycle and not do the real investigative journalism to find all of the the plethora of likely operations that would enrage Americans if they knew 
what our Department of Justice was doing. Some of that depends on Congress's lead. Congress has gotten, in some respects, like some in the media, where according to members themselves and their staff, there is not the appetite to do the hard-nosed investigations and oversight that they used to do. They just kind of want to get along. They want to pound their fists and look like they're doing something, but they won't carry it through to fruition. It's kind of like what I see in the media. When I hear them talk, I think that's, that's sort of like what we're doing. But if Congress were to get very serious and push hard to get information that's been withheld for several years on a lot of matters, maybe we'll get some of it. But as you know, in the recent past, when Congress has asked for information, federal agencies are just thumbing their nose at Congress. There is no genuine oversight the way maybe it once was or used to be or has been in some cases. Uh, the federal agencies can just ignore these requests from Congress. And the only thing that seems to be getting past that is if somebody bothers to file a lawsuit, whether it's members of Congress or the conservative watchdog judicial watch, because the press is sure isn't doing much of it. If they'll file a lawsuit, a court, although it takes a lot of time, may be able to get some of this information, public information that the government is withholding. So I think that kind of remains to be seen. If Congress gets aggressive about it, the press might follow it. But I don't think the press really thinks there's much to be found when Eric Holder leads office. I mean, if you ask most of the managers who decide what good stories are, there are simply Republican phony fake scandals and really nothing else to see. And when he leaves, why should there be any particular follow-up? The name of the book is Stonewalled. The author is Cheryl Atkinson. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.